Hello there, and welcome to Open Door Philosophy, a podcast where we unpack big philosophical concepts applicable to a life well lived. I'm Taylor Jones. And I'm your captain for this evening, John Luke Andrew Graziano. And apparently we're making jokes tonight. I'm Derek Parsons. And welcome to episode 53, where we will discuss the philosophy of Buddhism, the third episode in our four-episode overview of Eastern philosophy. But first, how's it going, y'all? So before I get into, like, you know, how my life is and whatever, uh, Andrew, are you familiar with The Next Generation? Is this... Yeah? Does that make me your number one? Am I Riker? Make it so. All right, very good. Taylor, how familiar are you with Star Trek The Next Generation? Not at all familiar. Then we'll move on. Okay, so my life is good. Uh, The pile of mulch that I asked, uh, was hoping that you guys would come over and help me with last weekend, uh, is still in my driveway, although it's been reduced by half. So I guess one of the things that's really fun about tonight is we're actually all together in a room recording in person. And so after it's over, we are going to move the mulch. (laughs) But no, life is great. Spring break is coming. Well, like I always say, uh, for probably the past three months or so, my life is an endless black hole of a day that's never ending. So it feels like two or three hours ago that we were last recording this episode. But it is great to finally record an episode in person with y'all, which is very exciting. How are your allergies? Yeah, they're bad. They're not doing well. Uh, I think we do we talk about this every year about this time about allergies are not great, especially yesterday. They're pretty bad. But I want to say something cool because you have the mulch thing and you have like the spring break thing. Um, I don't have anything. I don't think. Okay, I'm going to give it to Taylor. I'm the person without a thing. You made a Jean-Luc Picard reference that makes you immediately cool. Well, like Andrew said, I'm on spring break right now. I did survive my midterms and the tornado that went through Central Texas. If anyone was concerned at the end of last episode, doing good. (laughs) But I'm breaking and getting ready to go back to class on Sunday. Yes, astute listeners will have noticed at the end of last episode, about the last eight minutes, Taylor just kind of disappeared, and we had a very abrupt transition to listener mail. That's because uh, there was a tornado warning where Taylor was recording, and so she had to go hide in a hallway or something. How was that experience for you? Well, it was really something, because I had a midterm 12 hours later, and an assignment due at noon the next day. So... Really put a damper on my evening, but um, I was doing homework in the hallway. Uh, okay, and now for the, uh, the dorky, cheesy part of our episode, as if we haven't had enough of those already. Like I mentioned, we're all together here recording, and it's the first time we've ever done this, and it's super awesome, and we're all just sitting here in my office, and I couldn't be happier because we're all here together. Isn't that nice? It's a very cozy office. Long-time listeners will not know this either, but in our early days of recording, Mr. Parsons used to record in here, so it's cool not seeing it on like a 16-inch screen or something. Just like 16-inch screens, we're talking today about the philosophy of Buddhism, and <laughs> let me redo that. That's <laughs> We're going to be talking about the introduction to the philosophy of Buddhism course prefaced by a big note of introduction. Obviously, we're not going to be able to cover all of Buddhism. In fact, in our episode notes today, uh, I started off with four sections. I went to three sections. We ended up with two sections. So it's definitely not covering everything, nor the implications of everything. Maybe we'll do that some other time. But today, we're just going to try to get the basics out on Buddhism. So here we go. For today's episode on Buddhism, we decided to break it up into two different parts. Part one is going to be on the origins of Buddhism, so that's kind of uh, historiography uh, and some basic foundations of Buddhism, and then we're going to talk about some of the key tenets of Buddhism too. But Mr. Parsons is our resident historian. Uh, Do you want to kick us off with a little bit about the origins of Buddhist philosophy and the life and teachings of the Buddha? You can say no, too. That is exactly what I did not take any notes on whatsoever. 
However, what I do know, uh, Siddhartha Gautama, who's known as the Buddha, was a 5th century prince and grew up in a great deal of wealth and possessions. Uh, he was from, he was royalty, obviously. And in India, yeah, that's another thing to note. This is, unlike Confucianism and Taoism, which we covered in the previous episodes, Buddhism is really, out of the Eastern traditions, the one that has really been the most mobile, I guess, for lack of a better term. It started in India and then made its way into China and then throughout the rest of the Southeast Asia over into Japan. Whereas other ones, again, like, like for instance, Shinto in Japan, uh, that's not left Japan at all. So this is the one that's really transcended borders. But it began in India, and it's important to note that at the time, India was all, well, I don't know if all is the right word, the major religion in India was Hinduism at the time. And we'll cover that in our next episode. But one of the features of Hinduism, especially 2,500 years ago, was this very strict caste system. And Buddhism, in a way, is sort of a reactionary philosophical religious movement to that that is a little more egalitarian. Well, I don't know if it's a little more. It is. It's more, much more egalitarian than, say, Hinduism, where this road to salvation this road to nirvana and uh, being released from the cycle of rebirth can be done in a single lifetime for someone who is entirely devout. Whereas in the Hindu system with the caste system, it could take multiple lifetimes because of the lack of social mobility between those classes. Kind of like how we see with Christianity that might be in a way seen as a reactionary religion to Judaism at the time with how strict Judaism was with the with the with Jewish laws and Jesus came to bring this whole new message of uh, that's much more egalitarian similar with Buddhism really it's um, it's a reactionary type of religion anyway that's my background on it this reminds me a lot of a book that we just read for one of my classes called monkey and its original title was journey to the west basically where this character of a Buddhist monk, Zhuangzang, travels to from China to India to recover these Buddhist scrolls and bring them back. And it's one of the most, I want to say, like influential texts in terms of fiction because it revolutionized the way that Chinese literature was produced and it made literature... The novel was written in vernacular Chinese and centered on Buddhist themes, and it's one of the biggest evidences of Buddhism in pop culture because it continues to be translated and reproduced in different forms. So you see it in modern animations and things like Avatar The Last Airbender and all of these reproductions and adaptations of an ancient text centered on Buddhism. And I think that's really interesting to see how our modern culture still holds on to such an ancient tradition. I think that's something that um, is often overlooked in Siddhartha Gautama's life is kind of post-leaving of his, you know, it's very famous that he left his home, his very privileged life. He left after he saw the suffering. There's this very famous, it's kind of a tale, but there's this famous tale, I guess, that his father received a prophecy when uh, he was born that said, your child will either be a great king or a great warrior or something, or he will be a great religious teacher. And so I think that was the reason his father wanted to lock him up and, and train him or whatever, keep him from... He really wanted his father, didn't want him to be this great spiritual teacher. He wanted him to be this warrior king because his father was like a king. Or but after Gautama left, he went and apparently meditated for a long time and studied for a really long time. And then apparently he became enlightened. But after that, his enlightenment showed him, it gave him a deep understanding of suffering and how to escape suffering too. And so when we're going to be talking a lot about philosophy of Buddhism, it's going to be kind of a recognition of suffering. But anyway, uh, the, the rest of his life, 
Gautama spent teaching the path of freedom from suffering. And this teaching came to be known as Buddhism. And he would teach it to anyone who was interested in learning it. And Buddha, by the way, just means awakened, right? Awakened one. So I think that's a pretty good overview of Siddhartha Gautama's life. Before we get into aspects of Buddhism, I want to talk about what uh, the Buddha taught during his life and, and how that kind of looks a little bit different from Buddhism today or different things. Buddha taught these things called the Four Noble Truths, which we'll talk about in a minute. He taught that uh, attachment and cravings were the root causes of suffering, um, and there were ways to get around that and develop insights to free themselves from those negative behaviors. He emphasized the importance of compassion and kindness and taught a concept called the middle way. And kind of most strikingly, I think, is that his teachings weren't focused on worshiping a god or gods, but were rather on understanding and transforming of one's own mind and actions. So the person that I referenced most for my research was a philosopher, an American philosopher by the name of Jay Garfield. He is the chair of philosophy departments and directs Tibetan studies in India at Smith College. And he has written a number of books on Buddhism and engaging with Buddhism. Listen to a wonderful podcast episode with him on Panpsychast. One of the things he pointed out, very similar to how he pointed out with some of the other Eastern religions we've been looking at, the Buddhist world is a big place. There's not just one Buddhism. There are so many variations of Buddhism, just again, to compare to Christianity, so many different varieties of Christianity. And so what Garfield likes to point towards, or at least identify, are things that all Buddhists, no matter what variety of Buddhism it is, whether it's Japanese, Chinese, Tibetan, what all Buddhists worldwide, no matter where they're from, would agree upon. And he identifies these things. One, Andrew's already mentioned it, the Four Noble Truths, and we'll spend a lot of time this episode talking about those. Another, and this goes along with aspects of the Four Noble Truths, is what he called the fundamental characteristics of reality. In other words, all phenomena are interdependent. They're, it's called dependent origination. Everything is connected. There's no such thing as an individual anything. And to go along with that, all phenomena is also impermanent. And because of the interdependent nature of everything, all things lack an essence, which is a big word in the West, especially when it comes to philosophy. We might get to this in the episode where we start talking about perceptions that Buddhism advocates that there's no such thing as a self. There's some good answers to that, and that might be a bit misunderstood because of what we consider the self in the West, especially psychologically and philosophically. Anyway, those are the, those are the big things that really anywhere uh, a Buddhist will probably agree upon. We're going to be talking about the Four Noble Truths more and more in depth now, because they are a foundational point, like we've mentioned twice already. So, the first noble truth is the truth of suffering. This states that suffering exists in the world and is an avoidable part of human existence. Yeah, Buddhism is all about the fact that to exist is to suffer, period. And one of the great questions is, doesn't life actually seem kind of good? Like, we know there are things that happen in the world that are unfortunate, and there are occasions in our own lives when we have periods where things aren't so great that we suffer. But on the whole, like, isn't life good? Like, look at us. We're sitting here in this room. We've got laptops, and we've been drinking seltzer, and not hard seltzer, regular seltzer. And we're just smiling and having a good time and laughing. Like, you know, we're sitting in these nice comfy chairs. Like, life's pretty good, right? So what is this whole to exist is to suffer? That seems kind of heavy to me. So I don't know. I thought we'd, we'd talk about that. Okay. I don't know if this is controversial, but I disagree that to exist is to suffer. I think that's just such a pessimistic way of looking at it. So if you hold that worldview, it's almost self-fulfilling. If you believe that your life is going to be all suffering, then that's what you're going to see. You're going to see every negative thing, every time that something doesn't go your way. 
But if you have the fundamental belief that life is good and you have something centered on hope, then your life won't be suffering. I don't know. I think that's just such a sad way to look at the world is that everything is suffering and that you, your own desire is the cause of that suffering. That's just so, I don't like it. Personally, I think that would get me down so bad. And I would just be so sad all the time. But yeah, that's my take on it. Oh, no, I love that. I love that optimism. That's how I feel too. But I completely get where Buddhism is coming from on this. So in one way, it's a claim about our existence, our how we are in the world, like you, me, Andrew, we're all how we are in the world. It seems like, you know, things are, things are pretty good. But in a way, it's also a metaphysical claim that to exist is to suffer. And I don't know where the difference there is in between those two, but it seems like there is one. I don't really know what more to say about this. I think there definitely is a metaphysical claim here, of course, just about the nature of existence, which we can talk about. I think we should talk about the nature of uh, suffering and if it's a metaphysical claim or whatever. But I don't know. I I think that definitely maybe it is true that, uh, you know, existence is suffering, but also existence is kind of a gift. It's like a, a gift by itself, too. So um, maybe just I don't I don't want to say it's a gift to suffer because that sounds bad, but maybe it's just some part of life and it can give us things to love and things to appreciate. I don't know. That sounds kind of bad, but... Well, this is what I think is interesting about it, right? So in our sort of Western conception, especially a Judeo-Christian perception, it's that, yes, suffering does exist, and then philosophy, religion, and theologians spend their entire lives trying to come up why evil exists and why suffering exists. And some of that story that we tell ourselves about suffering is that it does happen from time to time, and when it does happen, it's something that we grow from, right? That we try to find some purpose behind that suffering, that, uh, that it will make me a stronger person, it'll help me relate to other people when they are going through tough times, and we try to put that particular type of spin on it. Whereas Buddhism is just like, no, it's just a fundamental feature of, of existence. And so what Garfield says about suffering, because what you guys have said, well, what all three of us have said about suffering is certainly not uncommon for someone who doesn't understand Buddhism. What Garfield says is that you may not be suffering at this very moment, but suffering exists, right? So two weeks ago in Turkey and Syria, there was an earthquake that killed 45,000 people. All across the globe at this very moment, there are children who are involved or subjected to child trafficking. Like, you can just keep on going. There's just terrible things happening at this very moment all over the globe. And he says, while we aren't currently experiencing that suffering, suffering exists. And when you look at the world or the universe in its interdependent parts, right, how we are all part of one single whole, in that way, suffering exists. So we're not experiencing it at this second but suffering exists. And if we don't care about the fact that suffering is existing somewhere else in the world right now, well, then we're just like jerks. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I mean, I don't really think I have anything, anything more to say about what you said. It's obviously true. And, you know, <laughs> there's some Augustine that I'm thinking about. That's just, I think is clearly wrong. Augustine talks a lot about free will. He says that the suffering in the world is caused by evil actions. And I don't, that's just, I don't think a true claim. And I don't think a lot of people see it. Like, imagine a deer in the woods, a tree falls on it. The tree just has old roots or something. It's in the middle of nowhere. And then the, this deer just has to like suffer. It's like trapped under it. Its legs are broken or something. I don't know. That seems like suffering. And I don't know if that's that's an evil act, but I think it would be interesting if we talk about, and we don't have to do this now, but at least it's an interesting question to think about a categorization of suffering for sure. And I think you will talk about that actually. So 
Some Buddhists would be quick to point out the differences between, say, evil and suffering and how those are, are different things. And how also, and we certainly do this in the West with certain philosophies, especially utilitarianism, uh, there are differences between happiness and pleasure, right? But anyway, those are some semantic things. So when we say suffering, okay, well, there's all kinds of different suffering, and we kind of know that. Andrew's already told us one, a beautiful story. Thank you, Andrew. Very touching. I'm now depressed. So Garfield identifies three different types of suffering that's evident in Buddhist, Buddhist discourse. So here they are very quickly. The first one is what he calls evident suffering. So that's going to be things that are happening to you or happening to others. In other words, it can be something as small as like having a headache or being embarrassed about something. But it can also be like being involved in a war in Ukraine or something like that. So again, back to the idea of interdependence, just because our lives at this current moment may not be suffering, they're suffering all throughout the globe. And so he says our interdependence with others guarantees that our life is filled with suffering. So that's evident suffering. The next thing that causes us suffering is what he calls suffering of change. And that's that simply things don't stay the same. We want things to stay the same. That's kind of our human inclination. But a lot of philosophy, I mean, in the West and the East, deals with this idea. You can go all the way back to Heraclitus and that everything changes, everything is subject to change, and we don't want things to change. We change, everything around us changes, uh, we're all just, you know, we're all going to, we, we're all born and, and we all die and we all change. And so there's another type of suffering that comes from that, and that's the suffering of not wanting things to change, even though that is quite obviously how the universe works. And then the third type of suffering is suffering of pervasive conditioning. In other words, we want to, and this has to do with change, we want to control our lives when we want to be independent, right? Especially in the West, we really want to be independent. Um, We want to be our own man or our own woman and go out there and do the things in the world and we don't need anyone to help us out. But again, all of that is impossible. We can't survive on our own. It's impossible. So this, it's this gap between this desire to control our situations and be independent versus the reality of that. Like, that's just completely impossible. Like, think of all the things that make our lives possible. Just like right here in this room tonight, right? Think of the, the people that made the chairs, made the paper, harvested the wood, made and helped the, grow the food that we ate for dinner. Like, we didn't, I didn't grow those I didn't grow that salad in my backyard that you guys ate. You know, someone someone grew that, someone harvested it, someone brought it to market. And so whether it's our clothes or raising cattle or whatever, uh, independence is a, is a misnomer. It doesn't exist. And so the distance between the control that we want and the lack of that control is a type of suffering itself. So back to the whole, just the idea of suffering in Buddhism. It's not just horrible things like I have cancer uh, or, or there's a war in Ukraine. There's other types of more metaphysical type of suffering, which is really what the second one and the third one's about. So all that to say, Garfield, again, is specifically a specialist in Tibetan Buddhism. And he says there's this Tibetan simile that everyone says, and that's happiness in the world is like licking honey from a razor blade. Like the razor blade is reality. And that happiness you think you're getting, well, it's just like licking honey off of that razor blade. Because if you're not too careful and you give into that, to the sweetness of that honey, you're going to slice your tongue. And I mean, like, I get it. Yeah, go. I feel like I'm being very skeptical this episode. But maybe I'm just, you know, I think I'm a skeptic at heart. But I just, no, I, I don't know how to articulate this. But I just think that that's not true. Because there's so many genuinely good things in the world. Like, I think that I like the equation of happiness and good things to honey because it's sweet. And prior to modern times, it was a delicacy. But I don't agree that happiness in general is like licking honey off a razor blade because I think that you can enjoy good things and not be harmed by them 
But there is a line you have to walk between overindulgence and the harm that can come by overindulging in something that may be good and enjoying a genuinely good thing. And it's not one and the same. Yeah, that's the good old virtue of, uh, of moderation, right? Temperance. Yeah. Honestly, I, I don't know how much uh, my good old Catholic fans are going disagree, to disagree with this idea at heart. Something cool about honey, too, like the taste of honey or the taste of any sweet is it's, it's a, and I'm sure this phrase is getting at this, too, but it's like honey is a short-lasting flavor in your mouth. It's not going to last for a long time. Most of Catholic theology and philosophies is, um, well, I don't know about most of it, but a lot of it is denying kind of the pleasures of the world in pursuit of those that are outside of it. And arguably, a lot of these really big Catholics and disciples and whatever, they're going to, they're going to endure a lot of suffering. And there's a, a controversial uh, fields of Catholicism that embrace suffering that put themselves in tremendous amount of suffering. Uh, a lot of priests, I mean, you know, if you think of the, this is a, the famous uh, Indo book, uh, Silence, those Japanese Christians go through a lot of suffering. And so I don't know if they're on the same coin or whatever, but that's there's something interesting there, I think, about a tradition that embraces, will almost embrace suffering at times. And we'll, we'll see what Buddhism does in a second. But my point here is that there's a recognition of suffering that's innate in the world here. And I think that a lot of traditions probably do find when, when we look at them. Well, one last thing on that happiness business. I'm sure it'll come up more and more as we go through. But another point that Garfield makes is that we're always careening. I love this, this uh, metaphor he uses. He says, we're always careening towards death, like fish in a net pushing to escape. I don't know if you've ever seen like fish, like a camera uh, filming fish caught in a net, but they're always swimming against the net and trying to escape. He says, that's what we're actually like throughout our entire lives. We're trying to escape this reality that is eventual death. So rather than confronting that, he says, what we do is we find ways to distract ourselves. And what we take to be real happiness is just a temporary distraction from our permanent condition of suffering. <laughs> and I guess I'll say at this point, man, all of this makes a lot of sense to me. But also there's a part of me that's just like, that's so, that's such a depressing, I don't know. Like, I know, and I, and I wonder if it even is considered depressing, Buddhist conception of things. Like, I know this weekend I'm going to attend a wedding, and it's going to be wonderful, and there's going to be dancing and celebration and song and and wonderful food and a beautiful ceremony and I'm like, you know, is is this what I is this a a temporary distraction from my permanent condition of suffering? In a way, I I feel like it takes meaning away from this type of ceremony I'm going to attend this weekend. And maybe it doesn't take meaning away from it. I don't know. Uh, I'm just being an existentialist sitting over here, I guess. But. I have a hard time thinking of my friend's wonderful wedding as being uh, just a temporary distraction of my permanent condition of suffering. I was going to say, before Mr. Parsons brought up existentialism, it reminds me in a lot of ways of Sartre's arguments in existentialism as a humanism, where he talks about suffering and how a lot of people misconstrue existentialism as a very pessimistic philosophy because it has some of the same ideas about we are suffering in reality, but, and we do try to distract ourselves and live in bad faith and we're not being authentic, but that it's ultimately a philosophy of hope. So maybe because of our inherent perspective, that's how we're seeing Buddhism when it's not how it is in actuality. I'm not sure. Something to think about, though. The grand poppy of existentialism, who I, at least I think, is, is probably Schopenhauer. Schopenhauer wrote what on pessimism or something, theory of pessimism, something on pessimism. And Schopenhauer is a big, he said that Buddhism, he thought, was the, the best of all possible religions. I mean, it was a big deal at Schopenhauer's time. So I think it makes sense that a lot of these kind of new agey 
philosophical, if we want to call them philosophical movements, like existentialism, they do have roots in Buddhism and Hinduism. And Schopenhauer talks about the Four Noble Truths and and, and the idea of suffering in his work. So, yes, for the fact that we see this in existentialism in Western philosophy is is because it 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 was influenced. Yeah. Well, gee, guys, I don't know about you, but that first truth was very noble. How about let's move on to the second one? All right. So the second noble truth is the truth of the cause of suffering. So truth number one, we're just recognizing it kind of. Second one, we're looking at the root cause of it. Second noble truth states that the root cause of suffering is attachment and craving. We suffer because we desire things and become attached to them, leading to feelings of loss, disappointment, and dissatisfaction. Example of this might be, so this is kind of a popular thing for people applying to law school, but there's this kind of idea that you're supposed to have like a pint of ice cream, your favorite ice cream after you get like an acceptance or whatever. I've never done this, but it's popular with the online people. So you're waiting for this acceptance, you get the acceptance. All you've been waiting for is the pint of ice cream, really, you know, not the acceptance itself. And then once you finish the pint of ice cream or it melts, it goes bad or whatever, kind of disappointing. And I think we might not have all gone through that with a pint of ice cream, but we can definitely remember a time in our life when we built up hype around a trip or something. And then at the end of it, just kind of looking back where I could be uh, way more morbid, but I will not. Now I want ice cream. So yeah, for a second noble truth, all about like what causes suffering. So I have a, I have a couple different examples of what causes suffering. And, and they're sort of like all of these noble truths are really kind of interrelated with each other. But some of those proximal causes are one, attraction and aversion. So very simply, we're attracted to things we don't have, like cool TVs or whatever. And we have aversion to some of the things that we do have. For instance, like poor health, or we have to pay taxes, or something like that. Those are features of who we are. So there are things that we desire that we can't have, and there are things that we do have that we wish we didn't. All of it is just attraction and aversion. So that's the first type of suffering. The next is, and it's very similar, it's the way that the world is and the way that we would really prefer the world to be. And then last, the only way to achieve happiness, and that's in like quotation marks, is that we'd have a type of freedom from what we have and what we want. So to stop being averse to those particular conditions. In other words, like we see in some other philosophical traditions, we just have to accept what is. And the more we can let go of our ego, which are the thing that which is the thing that drives us to want things like cool TVs or not want things like paying taxes. Um, the more we can let go of that, well, the less our suffering is going to be. To go back to existentialism, when Mr. Parsons mentioned the ego, that reminds me of Nietzsche's writings on the ego self and the idea of a higher self, specifically in Schopenhauer as educator, where he talks about how Schopenhauer is this great role model for what someone should be in the role of an educator. And he talks about how the educator helps you evolve from your ego or lower self into your higher self. And there's this idea of transcendence through education or enlightenment that we're still seeing in the 1800s and then beyond now into the 21st century. And you all are bringing the pain tonight with uh, all these philosophical references. Not pain as in suffering, different type of pain. (laughs) That's a dad joke, and I'm very sorry for it. Maybe this is a good spot because it's dealing with ego, but I do want to address the whole like Buddhism doesn't believe, or Buddhism believes that, that you are an illusion, yourself is an illusion. So Buddhism believes that all... Well, so, so here's what some of the typical viewpoints are about Buddhism. And one of those is that Buddhism believes that everything is an illusion, or Buddhism believes that there's no such thing as a self. 
like again, like I said earlier, is like philosophically in the West, we're obviously very concerned about that the self being introspective, uh, the view from somewhere rather than the view from nowhere, the subjective self. I mean, it all kind of it's all kind of how you frame it. Buddhism doesn't say that there is no self as we're probably conceiving the self. So let me say what Buddhism believes the self is. So again, back to that idea of the interconnected nature of all things. So we're part of all things, therefore we are part of that interconnected web of everything. So they say a person is made up of five aggregates. And the word that they that translates is, it usually means like a heap or a pile. Like think about like a pile of leaves or something. You are a pile of leaves. You're a heap uh, of something. So Buddhism differentiates between this sort of illusionary self and the real person. The self is an illusion, but there are no individual things in the universe. All things are inter- interdependent. So in that respect, there is no self. So Buddhists think of humans as continua, a sort of psychophysical processes that are constantly changing and in an open causal interaction with all other processes and continua in the world. So we are these piles, right? We're these heaps of continua. And if you think about piles, like piles don't have hard edges. Piles, uh, that piles can be separated into smaller piles and bigger piles. And um, you're never quite sure what, how many piles there are. And, you know, you just think about the wind blowing a pile. It's like, what is a pile, you know? And so here's these five aggregates that they, that they discuss. There's the physical and the material, right? So this, you know, the, the stuff that things are made out of, the stuff that we are made out of. The second one is the senses, right? Our sensations, like our five senses. So our hearing and tasting and those types of things. Next is, third is our perception. So that's a representation of discrete objects, right? We're looking at these laptops right now. We're looking at our, what is it called? Um, We're looking at our original New York peach soda seltzers bottles. It's a representation of discrete objects. Then we have disposition, or what we might call our personality traits. Like the three of us are incredibly hilarious and uh, witty and very enjoyable to be around. And then the fifth one is consciousness, right? This idea that you are thinking, that you are aware that you are thinking, you're aware that something exists, you're reflecting on things. So you put these five together, and, and that's what a person is. So it's not saying there isn't something that's you, right? It's saying that we are the aggregate of all of these things, because everything is the aggregate of all other things. So since we were talking about ego with the second noble truth, I figured that was a good place to throw that in. I don't know. What do you think about that? Have you ever heard that? Like, like Buddhism doesn't believe in a self? Or this is something that I find crazy about the second second noble truth, then connected to, I guess how Buddhists. I guess your last point kind of relates to how Buddhists think about themselves, right? How Buddhist thinks about themselves, and I think there's a lot of kind of these. There's a lot of reflection in Buddhism on like we were saying in the second noble truth, our attachments and our cravings, et cetera, et cetera. And I think part of the second noble truth is realizing that we cling to things like being being scared of death, being, well, that's the big one that I've been, that I was thinking about, but um, clinging to the expectation that it's not right for us to suffer, clinging to the idea that all good people have just lives or something like good things happen to good people we're clinging to that expectation uh, and we have no some people would say this but uh, we have no real reason a buddhist might say to think that's true right that's just an expectation that we're clinging to and so the buddhist might say if we the reason that we suffer because of we're scared of things like death we're scared of things like pointless suffering we're scared of things like whatever it's because we're clinging to our expectations about how life should be, right? And so I think that's really kind of mind trippy for me. So a lot of what you just said makes me think about Stoicism, and I think especially just because I'm so familiar with it, I'm reading him again as Marcus Aurelius, and he does have this a great deal of emphasis on death. 
and trying to see the world really for what it is, rather than all this illusion of how we would just like for it to be. I don't know that I have anything more to say about that, but I think it's a great crossover. When I was checking this this idea out, uh, I was going to my favorite place, Reddit. This person on Reddit was talking about this neuro... I think he's a neuro... I think he's just a neuroscientist. Anyway, smart, very smart guy. I read a few of his books before. He has this very famous book called Phantom Limb. His name is V.S. Ramachandran. I don't think he's Buddhist, but he's famous for discovering this concept called phantom limbs. Are you all familiar with this? And so he did a lot of work on that. And this person on Reddit was kind of noting, you know, like he would take them into their office. They wouldn't have like the bottom of their, from their elbow to the tips of their fingers. He'd say, okay, extend your hand on the table. He'd get like a mallet and smash the table where their hand would be. And they'd oh my gosh, my middle finger, you just hit my middle you're having pain. And so a lot of these people, this Reddit person saying that these people were living in like unbearable pain because they were experiencing something that wasn't there. And so they were having like a lot of suicidal thoughts, etc. Like that must be an awful experience. So this Reddit user's idea was that what Ramachandran did was he had them kind of do some mental exercises to work with the brain and tell them to, but release, kind of come to acceptance that they didn't have their their hand or whatever, didn't, it wasn't there, they weren't clinging to it anymore. And so this Reddit user's point, I'll quote them, up in the clouds with a Z, they say, the sensation of pain comes from the brain's expectation to find something which is not there. When you can train your mind to expect nothing, and continue going without hesitation, you feel very little pain. Sounds like Seneca. Up in the clouds, huh? (laughs) With a Z. So hardcore. Well, gee, you know, only if there was a way that we could escape this suffering. Uh, What's the third noble truth, Andrew? Third noble truth is the cessation of suffering which states that it is possible to end suffering by overcoming overcoming attachment and craving. This is achieved through the cultivation of mindfulness, ethical behavior, and the development of wisdom and insight. So in this one, Garfield says of something very similar, we can overcome, like this is it, we can escape the suffering. But how do we do that? And it's by engaging and apprehending with reality, by seeing the world as one, impermanent, two, interdependent, and three, lacking intrinsic reality. So if those are the conditions, you know, I know I talk a lot about when I cover existentialism that we must acknowledge what the condition is. And once we can acknowledge what the condition is, we can figure out how to address it. And so for Buddhism right here, the noble truth number three is this is the condition. It's that the world is impermanent because everything changes. Everything is interdependent. And because of that interdependence, it lacks a type of intrinsic essence or reality. And I I guess I will say this right here. Just because something is impermanent doesn't mean it's not important. Like the Buddhists will always make a point of that. Doesn't necessarily mean what's important, you know, isn't suffering in one way or another. But just because something's impermanent doesn't mean it's not important. Our lives are impermanent. It doesn't mean our lives are not important. Um, this evening is impermanent. Uh, doesn't mean it's not important and meaningful. I think that's a really good point because I think there's a very common misconception about Buddhist monks, especially that they're kind of pacifists and will let anything kind of happen to them and they'll kind of accept it. Uh, I'm thinking of famously China's invasion of Tibet in the 1950s. Maybe this will get us shadow banned or something. China's invasion of Tibet in the 1950s. I think people are like surprised to find that pretty sure that monks were fighting back. And and so some, some people might be asking, well, Andrew, why, uh, if it was like an impermanent country or whatever, they were all going to die anyway, why did they fight back? Well, you know, it's important for them to keep their religion, keep it spreading. There's this very famous uh, Vietnamese, not in the Tibetan tradition, but in the Mahayana tradition, 
I'm sorry, I will probably mispronounce this, Tik Kwong Duk. He was in the 1960s, the South Vietnamese government was persecuting Buddhists. This monk famously burned himself alive uh, in protest. I mean, it's it's very famous. I, I I don't. There's there are there is pictures of him in a sitting posture, burning himself in 1963. Uh, so it's it's not like we can just say, okay, you know, Buddhists are just kind of giving a middle finger to the world and saying, yeah, you know, I'll just retreat back and you guys can deal with your own suffering. It's like, no, these Buddhists uh, have cares. They're involved with these political events. So it's definitely not, we should definitely not misconstruct like a Buddhist as someone who's just not caring about these things. Yeah. Oh yeah, I'm very familiar with it. Yeah, again, it makes me think of Stoicism. One of the criticisms of Stoicism is that you're just, well, stereotypically speaking, you're being Stoic and not caring about these types of things by letting go and not worrying about your reputation and all these types of things. But as we know, the Stoics were incredibly involved with things. Because really, Secours was not only just a, a political person, he was the emperor. And he wrote his meditations while he was out on campaign. Yeah, no, it's a great, it's a great point, Andrew. Just a little crossover I thought about. Okay, guys, we made it. We made it to the fourth noble truth. Here we are. So let's, let's lay it out. So alleviation from suffering must include action, which means following the eightfold path. So fourth noble truth is just a launch point to the eightfold path, which is all kinds of things like living positive and good life. And we're going to hand it over to Taylor. So we talked a little bit about this in my class, World Cultures, a couple of weeks ago. And I'm not sure if I have exactly the same iteration of the eightfold path. We talked about it as named the eight paths, but still in the same idea of reaching enlightenment. So I'll just go through all eight things. That way we get them covered and then we can discuss the implications of them. So we have right understandings, right thought, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effect right mindfulness, and right concentration. So all of those eight aspects are essential facets of reaching enlightenment, and that's how you escape suffering. So the thing I like about the Eightfold Path is, and we mentioned this when we talk about philosophies of life, is that not only does it involve a metaphysics, we've been talking largely about that, which is suffering, but it also involves an ethic. And with the Eightfold Path, we get a pretty clear ethical perspective on what we should do. I mean, essentially, if existence is suffering, then we should do what we should do to alleviate that suffering. And we should uh, get rid of things that contribute to that suffering, which sounds a little utilitarian when you put it in that sense. But that's really what the Eightfold Path is. And that's really what any ethical, virtuous type of system is, is, is we have these things that are good, and we have these things that are not good. And we do the good things, and that contributes to uh, good. We avoid the bad things, and that that makes sure we don't contribute to it. Makes a lot of sense to me, to be honest. I'm sure there's eight of them. I've no doubt in Buddhism there are volumes upon volumes that expands upon those ideas. I mean, these have to all be responses, I'm just guessing, which is probably not great for me to do, but I would guess that all these are all eight right things to do. I'm assuming that their opposites are things that cause suffering. Right, all the suffering. I think this is also, there's very famously in Theravadian Buddhism, this idea of a Dharma wheel. Have you all seen this? And I believe the Dharma wheel uh, um, represents following, I think it has like eight planks or something. And I, th- I believe it's following the Eightfold Path. I have like two things to say about this, but so I'll say these and then I have a question for you all. First, this is not kind of like a linear path. We don't start with number one. We don't start with right understanding, which will lead to right intention, which will lead to right speech. This is nonlinear. We are, uh, when we're thinking about these, they're kind of all interconnected with each other that lead to spiritual growth and liberation, which is important because this might be different in like Western traditions where it is important to cultivate one virtue, some virtues before others. Secondly, 
when we follow the eightfold path an individual they're cultivating these skills right it's skills and qualities that they're cultivating in themselves which are necessary for one to achieve this enlightenment and live a life of compassion and wisdom and inner peace. So there's a, a cultivative sense here. We're doing this to cultivate ourselves, to make ourselves a certain kind of way, which is cool. I was going to ask you all, do you have a one of these that interests you the most? Personally for me, I think right livelihood was really interesting. This is, well, I, I don't need really interesting to think about thinking about our work is contributing to something that's good and important which is probably really weird for us to think about uh, in the west I'll, I'll probably be working at a big law firm a few years where we're going to be crushing the little guy so uh, that makes me feel great when i read that mr parsons might be in a more noble endeavor i don't know about taylor you can still choose better path better path than me um, you can still choose. You always have choice. <laughs> they have grand desires. Uh, <laughs> okay. Uh, I'll pass it along. Enough enough of me on the mic. Uh, okay, so for me, I guess the one that I like the most, and I know I'm being totally platonic about this, I apologize, uh, is right understanding. I feel like everything else kind of flows from that. I know, especially if you look at the wheel or like lotuses or something like that, using the like eightfold path, it's all interconnected, obviously. But I try to, when I think about cultivating myself as a uh, trying to be a better person, the best person I can be, I really believe in Aristotle's claim that, which by the way, we had a poll on last week, which is uh, knowing yourself is the beginning of all knowledge. And you have to have right understanding before you can really pull off the other ones. Although pulling off the other ones or attempting the other ones is better than not doing anything at all. So anyway, I don't know. That's the one that, that resonated with me. I'm going to go a bit of a different direction with my favorite. I would think looking at the wheel, the right mindfulness in this moment of my life is maybe the most important because I think a lot of things, especially when you're so young and in such a period of transition, the way that the first year of college is, come down to having the right mindset and being mindful of what's going on around you and focusing on the right things and not the things that are going to lead you either astray or down a path that you don't want to go down. And that as long as you have a solid perspective and you see what's going on around you for what it is, and you're mindful of what you're doing and how you're doing it, everything else can fall into place. But if you get, if you have an, I don't know how to say, a like non-right perspective, like if your perspective becomes skewed and you focus on the wrong things, it's really easy to get really down on yourself and fall into a bad place so you have to maintain like a solid foundation and I know that's kind of easy to just say but like staying committed to that because school gets so busy and it's easy to get really discouraged with how busy you get and how you don't get to talk to your family enough and you want to go home and not be missing out on things but you have to keep in mind what you're doing and why you're doing it. Yeah, I think that's what I would say. And I guess the last thing I'll, I'll say about all this is, you know, we've talked a lot about suffering this episode. Following the eightfold path is not going to just completely make suffering disappear from the earth. There's probably very similarly when we talk about the problem of evil and the philosophy of religion, there's there's a natural suffering and then there's suffering that is uh, that comes by the hands of other human beings. So things like right thought, right speech, right action, that has to do with other people, other human beings. And we can't get rid of suffering, but we can alleviate a lot of it. And we can alleviate a lot of it by treating other people right. And so in that way, it dismisses some of that suffering. I segmented this episode uh, in the introduction as two parts, and we only hit one of those two parts. So it goes without saying then, well, we, we covered a lot of it. Uh, oh, we didn't. <laughs> it's okay. It's all good. The point being, there's a lot to Buddhism. 
just like there is to any philosophy, we didn't hit a lot of things like karma. We didn't really talk about interdependence. We didn't talk a lot about uh, nirvana either, which are some really important aspects to Buddhism. But I think we we hit the introductions. We hit a, a pretty good foundation, I think, to at least the philosophy side of, of Buddhism. But if you're interested in learning more, you can check out the podcast Mr. Parsons mentioned. You can check out Jay Garf- Jake Garfield on the PanPsychast podcast. When I was learning about, this was, I think, more... Well, I forget. But there's a famous, very, very famous monk who just died, whose name is Thich Nhat Hanh. He's a very famous, he just died last year, very, very famous uh, Buddhist advocate uh, and also Buddhist writer who wrote a lot of books. I really enjoyed um, Old Path, White Clouds, which is a, it's kind of like a, I don't know, it's not historical fiction, but it reads almost like historical fiction of the Buddha's life. That's really good. Why don't we go around and say like one thing that we that was important from the episode that we thought we're like one. If you had to summarize uh, something important from Buddhism, you know, the Tibetan simile: happiness in the world is like licking honey from a razor blade. That that has stuck with me since I've heard it, and I listened to that episode a number of months ago. Um, and then just recently listened to it again. Yeah, happiness in the world is like licking honey from a razor blade. Again, I, I don't know what to say about it other than, boy, it's really thought-provoking and uh, and causes me to think lots of things. How's that prof- profound? It causes me to think a lot of things. I don't know how I'm going to follow that up. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> I think... That what I take from Buddhism and from what we talked about today has a lot to do with our desire as a cause of suffering, which is somewhat of a universal ideal between a lot of philosophies, and that Buddhism lays out a pretty concrete path to alleviating your suffering that has a lot to do with personal betterment and enlightenment, and I think that's something really important to take hold of that we have agency in our suffering to not only alleviate our own suffering, but we can make other lives better too by enlightening ourselves or by becoming enlightened. I mean, I think if there's one thing maybe as an exercise that might just be helpful or or practical for someone just listening to this episode, but you know, might not want to dive head deep into Buddhism, think about one of the central claims that uh, craving and attachments are are the root of suffering. And so maybe think about things that we crave. I think craving to me has this kind of rewarding aspect to it, right? Like if you, if you crave like a Starbucks matcha latte or something, I don't know, I don't go to Starbucks, Starbucks matcha latte, and you're craving it all day, you're at least what I think of is like, you know, I'm going to reward myself after this test or this exam or whatever with this craving. Anyway, uh, I don't need to go into a spiel about cravings, but I think it's at least interesting where it would be interesting to kind of think about things that you crave or you're attached to and, and see how much value those those bring to your life. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to this episode on Buddhism. We had a great time. You know, your time is precious, but you know, don't desire it or anything. We're just sending it there. Okay, this is like the 12th time I've tried to say this. Here's Taylor. Yeah, I think it's safe to say we had a great time recording in person today. And we would love to hear from you, just like every week, whether that be on our socials, on Twitter or Instagram, or TikTok. And our email at contact at opendoorphilosophy.com. Thanks for bringing some like structure again to this. As always, a special thank you to Kevin McLeod for the use of his free music in the intro and outro. And thank you for NPR for letting me uh, borrow how y'all speak into a microphone today. It was fun. I think that's it. Do we have anything else to say? Alrighty, folks. That's all for today. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Open Door Philosophy. We will be back in two weeks with our final episode.
episode in the series on Hinduism before jumping off into something new. Just remember though, whenever your life is in need of some philosophy, the door's always open. Thanks. Bye. Bye everyone. Just like a, a pocket with a hole in it. Existence is like a pocket with a hole in it. You think like you can put your phone in your pocket and it won't fall out. But then sometimes your pocket has holes in it. <laughs> it's all <laughs> what kind of cardigan are the pocket is on the inside. Not that side, the other inside. Oh my god. And here we go. Rice University graduate here, ladies and gentlemen. And Okay. <laughs> Is that you saying? Uh, I think it's like a student uh, made up of, of rice. Of rice. Unconventional wisdom. Hmm. Well, that those pockets are unconventional. Okay. <laughs> anyway, uh, we had a moment there about Andrew's cardigan pockets. <laughs> anyway.